patients we spoke to were savvy and that they were really wary of taking at face value um, information that they didn't consider came from a credible source. Welcome to this podcast on patient information. My name's um, Anya Jeong, I'm one of the patient editors um, at the BMJ. I'd like to introduce Sue, who is the chair of the Patient Information Forum. Um, who's going to talk a little bit more about um, one of their recent reports about patient information leaflets um, and why this is so important. We know that patients often talk about both the quality and the quantity of information they receive as being really important as part of their experience of care. Um, So I'd like Sue just to introduce herself um, to us so we can get to know her a little bit more as well. Um, I'm Sue Farrington and I'm Chair of the Patient Information Forum and I'm also Chief Exec of a medical health charity, Scleroderma and Raynaud's UK. And and for those of you who haven't come across the Patient Information Forum, it's a a membership organisation for people who produce and provide healthcare information. And our primary aim is really to drive up quality standards and to ensure that patients are accessing the right information at the right time so that they can make informed decisions about their health and their care. Um, And I'm passionate about patient information because I've seen the benefits firsthand that when people have the right information and they have shared conversations, how it can put patients in control and enable them to better self-manage and enable them to take greater responsibility. And I think we're seeing that the NHS is hard-pressed to deliver the services at the moment. And there's an increasing call from government for patients to acknowledge that alongside their right to access treatment, they've also got a responsibility. But I would say that actually to take that responsibility, they need to be in a position where they've got the right information. Um, And so that's really what we're trying to achieve through um, our recent report, um, which is called Seven Steps to Improving Information Services for People with Long-Term Conditions. Because there's a wealth of fantastic health information out there, but the problem and the challenge at the moment is patients aren't accessing it. It's really helpful to hear about how patient information is important. But we know that this doesn't just stop at providing information to patients, but also that we need to feel supported to use it um, and being able to use it importantly to change our behaviour or manage our health. So Sue's mentioned that there's lots of high quality information out there. And I think one of the challenges I hear people talk about is how you can tell what is high quality information and where would you go about finding that out? I think a key thing is the simplicity with which um, either information about the diagnosis or information about uh, recognising symptoms. I think it's really simple language where visuals are used to enhance the text and they're not just there for purposes uh, to fill a white space. Um, I think that quite often some of the best materials that we've seen are coming from the third sector and there are many, many, there's probably for every condition, there is a a medical health charity that's out there. Um, So I think one of the things as well now we're looking at online and I think also that kind of quality kite mark applies as much to the online material as it does to the printed material. And as much as we're trying to get away 
from printing information, um, I think we've still heard in our conversations with clinicians and patients that they do want that written information. So it sounds like one thing that makes good quality information is the process um, for creating it. Um, you've talked about the, the sort of standards and where that information comes from um, to be sort of curated, I suppose. The challenge then becomes for people who are looking at that information, how can they spot that it's high quality? So in waiting rooms and hospital corridors, when you quite often see racks and racks of leaflets, um, we know that there's the information standard, which has a logo. Um, but like everything, it's it's not as well um, publicised or people aren't always aware of it um, as perhaps they could be. Um, so for people perhaps looking at these racks of leaflets in, in healthcare settings, how can you tell that it's high quality? Do you know, I think we're in the foothills and I think we've got to establish some basic principles. I think what we're talking about here is personalization of information. And I think that requires a good relationship between your clinician or your healthcare professional. But I don't even think we're quite at that stage yet. We're at a stage where it's hit and miss as to whether any information is given uh, and predominantly we're hearing that information is given at the point of diagnosis, but that people are overwhelmed with the amount of information that they're given. So I think one of the things that we think is really important is that we don't see information as something that sits outside the clinical and care pathway or that it's something to be provided once. Uh, and it's not straightforward. Um, so at the Patient Information Forum, we've been working with patients and clinicians to kind of map and model what a perfect patient information journey might look like for people with long-term conditions. And you're right, each patient is an individual and each patient journey is going to be distinct. But actually it was really clear from our discussions with patients that there were several points along a patient's journey when access to information becomes of greater importance. And I think patients were saying, look, let's get the basics right first. So one of those first points was on diagnosis. And I think one of the key things is, is about giving initial simple information, but signposting people to where they can go to get better information. One of the things I read with particular interest um, from the Patient Information Forum report uh, was this contradiction that you acknowledged yourself that on the one hand, it's really important that people get information at diagnosis, but equally that actually it can be quite overwhelming to receive a lot of information at that point um, in your journey as a patient. And then that our information needs and preferences as patients will change over time as well. So it's quite interesting and particularly important to think about what an individual might need at one particular time and how we tailor that to, to that particular individual, their circumstances and, and where they're at. And I'd love to hear a bit more about that. So patients were saying, yeah, um, on, on diagnosis, we want information. And we know that some people will be voracious readers, um, but actually your ability to take in information, even if you're the most intelligent person on the planet, is probably limited at that point of diagnosis. So a very, very simple, small booklet, which maps out some of the basic information, but that's followed up with um, signposting 
to other information that you can can access knowing what helplines are out there knowing what support groups are out there because information is 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 a mix of things it's about the information you read it's about the information you discuss and it's also about hearing from people in a similar position to you um, so I think that was the first really important thing. The other key stage in the pathway that was repeatedly talked about um, was where a decision needs to be made in relation to a change of treatment or care. Uh, and people said that was really important to have some time and space to have a conversation. And one of the things that came out of that was what are the questions you ask? And you always go into a, a situation like that and you know the questions, but as soon as you get in there, they go out of your mind. So, you know, some of the things, they're not rocket science, very simple things like having um, a, a checklist of questions to ask. And the work that we did with St. Mark's Hospital with their inflammatory bowel disease team, working with both staff and patients, that was one of the things that came up and that we were able to do immediately to improve the patient information experience. Just that simple checklist of questions that would be helpful to ask. Um, I, I, I think it's really important that we look at from diagnosis, particularly with long-term conditions, is through that pathway to where the changes happen, but also about how can you support somebody to self-manage their condition. So understanding those symptoms, understanding what they can do, understanding where uh, initial signs of a relapse might come on. Um, so those were other areas that were really important. And where kind of other things change. So taking into account changes that don't directly relate to the condition, but maybe it's about having children or traveling uh, and patients felt that that was really important information for them to have, but not to be bombarded all at once with that information. So I think the bottom line is we must put patient information needs at the forefront of health planning and service delivery, not as an afterthought or a nice to have. It has to be uh, integrated within that pathway. One thing that struck me as you were talking um, was how the sharing of information between healthcare professionals and a patient, their carer and their family is integral to the therapeutic relationship that exists between those people. What was also interesting that you touched on is the kind of information that people actually want. So, so yes, there's the clinical management side of things that people often want and need information about. But there's also a lot of non-clinical questions about living with long-term conditions, for example, that are equally important for some people too. And sometimes that information might not necessarily come from a healthcare professional, perhaps. And as we talk about patients playing a more active role in their own healthcare, one of the things that we hear more and more about is patients coming into appointments with checklists and pre-prepared questions, um, which is on the one hand is a really important part of, of self-management that we know um, can have a really positive impact. Um, but we also sometimes hear that clinicians say that patients coming in with massive lists can be very daunting. Um, they know they won't be able to cover all of that during one appointment and can understandably create some frustration. Have you got anything to sort of reassure clinicians perhaps about um, how more informed patients are, are actually still something very much um, to be welcomed? 
Well, firstly, uh, to say that the checklist that we developed with St. Mark's team, it was a one-pager, but that will not prevent um, patients who are concerned and are engaged, perhaps coming in with a whole uh, wealth of other information. But what we picked up with the clinicians at St. Mark's and also at another NHS federation, um, another NHS foundation trust, was that actually they would prefer people to come engaged, wanting to better understand their condition, because actually it saves time down the line. It's almost that kind of invest to save. And I know there are huge pressures on people's time. So there were a couple of things. One was about sharing that responsibility between the key clinician and other healthcare professionals, um, particularly nurses who play a significant role. And now that actually that time spent with the nurse going through to uh, go through their questions, to check understanding. Do they understand how to properly take their medication? Do they understand um, the initial signs of a relapse? Actually, all of that saves time and money in the long run. And so the team at St. Mark's were considering, how can we look at this in the bigger picture? How can we look at the time that this will save uh, people calling up after they've left the clinic? So it's better to invest that time in the here and now when the patient is there than it's not to stop patients calling, but actually they did say that they started to note a number of the number of uh, calls was reduced. So ultimately, it does save time. That's really encouraging to hear. One of the things from the report, which I also found encouraging, um, was that Dr. Google, in adverted commas as you called it, um, can be a problem, but that generally patients are able to filter the information they find and use it responsibly. So I'm interested to hear how you came to that conclusion. So the patients we spoke to were savvy and that they were really wary of taking at face value um, information that they didn't consider came from a credible source. What they considered were credible sources were NHS choices, NHS sites, and voluntary sector organisations. Um, and it's a bit like in the same way you would seek a second opinion. If they saw information on there and they weren't quite sure, they would seek out another source to kind of verify that information. Um, I think one of the other areas that you can access by Dr. Google are a lot of uh, peer support networks. Some are better than others. I think you probably uh, can have more confidence trusting those that sit within voluntary sector organisations. But I think we shouldn't ignore the real power of hearing from other individuals and the experiences that they've gone through. Um, but if other individuals are advocating remedies and medicines that the individuals uh, never come across before, um, then I think that's where you need to go and verify that source of information. Um, and of course, we can't assume that everybody, we are sometimes very vulnerable when we go to Dr. Google. And particularly, I think, when somebody's been first diagnosed. And I know from somebody who is very close to me who got a diagnosis of a rare and potentially life-threatening disease. And they went on to Google. Um, and I think this is before the times of uh, good search engine rankings and came across the most horrifying pictures 
um, that were contained on there and was then convinced that she was going to die the next week. So I think one of the things I would like to see happen is that those credible sources that have the information standard come to the top of all search engine rankings. Now, I know there's a way that organizations can make sure that happens through keyword strategies, but it doesn't mean that all voluntary organizations will be as savvy. Um, so I don't know if there is anything that could be done to ensure that information standard accredited organizations do get their information coming up to the top of search engine rankings. That's possibly an ask that's too, too, too much. That's a really well-made point and perhaps one of the challenges for this area. One of the things that the report acknowledged was that time is a real barrier to implementing some of these recommendations about supporting patients to have a perfect information journey. And I wonder if you had any advice for busy clinicians who acknowledge that this is important and want to change their practice, um, but are also constrained by, by time. Yes, I think if you don't have the time to step out of your day job and commit that space to go through um, the kind of seven step process and have those focus groups with patients and staff, um, then I think it's looking at what you have on your information boards. Is it the most accurate, up-to-date information or is it out of date? Um, how are you using clinics in screen? Um, we've all seen the television screens. Can you use that um, for your particular um, service and make sure that you've got your signposting to either local support groups or national organizations? I think one of the other things that came out of our work with St. Mark's Hospital is that they knew um, a charity, the Crohn's and Colitis charity existed, but actually they weren't really across um, all of their information resources. So they took it upon themselves to go and find out what was available and found a wealth of information that actually meant they didn't need to duplicate materials. They didn't need to write their own and that would save them time. They could signpost to credible information. And also one of the ideas that came up is that on the bottom of their letters that they sent out to patients, they would put in um, the name of the credible voluntary organization and their website address. So even if after a conversation, the patient had possibly forgotten many of the things that had been said, there was a link to a trusted provider, provider of information and support. So I think those are a couple of things that if you don't have time to go through a process, you could do. One of the threads that's been underlying our whole discussion today um, is how important it is that this information is created in partnership with the people that are going to be using it. So patients, people with health conditions, their families and carers. So we know that there's guidance out there about involving patients and people and carers in the design of services and research and even publishing, for example, here at the BMJ. But what sort of guidelines are there for creating information resources together collaboratively? As with everything, it's important to involve your users at the very beginning. So when you're looking to develop um, an information booklet or an information fact sheet, involve people with the condition right at the very beginning because I think it's through those conversations that you really learn what's most important and what's relevant to that user group. Also, I think they will help in um, 
identifying what's the best way to communicate, what are the visuals that will stand out, what what they like and what they don't like. Because at the end of the day, the information has to be presented in an engaging and visually appealing way. Because you can create all the information in the world, but if people aren't drawn to it or want to engage with it, then it's been a waste of time. So I think involve people right at the very beginning so you understand what is relevant and what meets people's needs, but also understand a, a cross a cross section. Uh, I know we all have our different preferences, but you'll often find that there's one presentation or one way of communicating something that has more general appeal. So I think that's really important. Um, that we understand what people will be drawn to, what they'll engage with. And I think it is those use of visuals um, that really do help people access the information um, more easily. That's a good point. You can have very high quality information, but if it isn't read, then it's not going to help anybody. So we've been hearing about what works for patients and people. And I was wondering, either from your role as a professional here with the Patient Information Forum, um, or perhaps your own experience as someone using services, do you have any examples of what really works and what really doesn't um, as part of this patient information journey? So I think one of the things that I know from my own experience of having a hip operation is just how important it is to get the right information at the right time. And for me, I mean, I think I was lucky. It started with my very first consultation with the surgeon. And we talked about what the options were. And he listened to me about my uh, lifestyle and my situation. But he also shared with me from his medical and professional experience what he thought the best solution was. <clears throat> but then said, okay, go away and think about that. Uh, I have to say that was quite a lot to think about. And I think at that point, actually, an improvement opportunity might have been if he'd said, and here's a, a support group or here's an organization where you can go um, to find out other people's experience. But fortunately, I did it myself. And I found somebody who'd had a hip operation. I talked to them about what they, what their option had been and what they went through. And that was hugely helpful in um, enabling me to make, to make a decision. Uh, it, it was, in fact, the decision that the, the choice that I went for was one that the surgeon had recommended. Um, but at least he gave me that time and space to go away and think about it. Um, Probably the most important information sharing was the pre-operation face-to-face education session that they run at King's College. Um, and it was supported by printed materials. Uh, and do you know what? I can't tell you how many times I then referred back to those printed materials. Uh, and I know I'm a real passionate advocate of we should be saving money, we should be doing things digitally. But to have those in my hand, uh, you know, when I was doing my exercises, when I was looking at, you know, what I should look out for, if things aren't going particularly well, it was so good to have those in my hand. Um, so, yeah, I think the written materials were important, but the other aspects of my information journey, which included that shared conversation with the surgeon, both pre and post-operation, the peer support and the education program, all of those elements for me 
created what I would almost call the perfect information journey. And I think the thing is, there are examples of brilliant practice going on. In fact, we just need to share them more widely. I think, obviously, hip operations are something where there has been increasing focus and talk about shared decision aids. So it's an area, I think, that has been developing and building. But there may be experiences that they can share with other services, with other healthcare services. Um, but I do have to confess to um, referring to Dr. Google on several occasions to check out whether, should this be happening or shouldn't it? I did uh, have to then do my own verifying, but it was helpful to hear from other patients what they'd gone through, what they worried about. So I do think it's it's a, a kind of smorgasbord. It's not just the printed information, it's everything else that contributes to that patient information journey that's so important to make sure is embedded in the care pathways. Thank you ever so much, Sue. That's all for this podcast. It's one of a series that we're doing, talking to people who are out there making patient and public partnership actually work at the forefront of our services. We've heard in the past from James Munro of Care Opinion, who's helping making patient feedback heard and making a difference. And from Catherine Cohen from the James Lind Alliance, who brokers agreement about research priorities. You can hear these and some of the exciting ones that are going to be coming up soon and all of the other BMJ's podcast episodes in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And subscribe so you don't miss out on any future ones. I'm Anya Jung, patient editor with the BMJ. Thank you for listening.